Hey everybody, Eric Grenier here, and welcome to the sixth episode of the Writ Podcast. And it could turn out to be the last pre-election podcast. We'll have to wait and see. And that's what I wanted to tackle first of all. When is this election actually going to happen? When is the Writ going to drop? When will Justin Trudeau appear before uh, Rideau Hall to announce when the election date will be. The Hill Times reported recently that the Liberals are eyeing either August 8th or August 15th for a call, and that would put the election at September 13th or September 20th. That's if they go with the 36-day minimum campaign length, which is what is expected and is usually what incumbent governments do, especially if they're leading in the polls. The longer the campaign, the greater chance there is of something going wrong. It does seem that if the Liberals are deciding to call an election either this coming Sunday or the one after that could be because they're trying to get ahead of the potential for a fourth wave, uh, which could build and be a problem by the time we get into the fall. It does seem like the date is moving up because the earlier betting had been for a call sometime at the end of August, maybe around Labor Day for an election late September, early October, Uh, And certainly maybe waiting for the Nova Scotia election to be over. But Nova Scotia is still in the midst of a provincial election campaign. It's only coming to an end on August 17th. So either of these days, August 8th or August 15th, it does suggest that there will be some overlap between uh, the federal campaign and the Nova Scotia campaign. Now, there's not really much of a risk in terms of this overlap. Voters in Nova Scotia probably aren't going to be too upset that, you know, for a week or two, they have to think about a federal election campaign in addition to voting uh, for their provincial election. But there is still a risk for the Liberals if the Nova Scotia Liberals have a bad result. If they lose the election or underperform, that wouldn't necessarily be very good news for Justin Trudeau in the first or second week of an election campaign. Now, on the other hand, the polls are looking pretty good for the Liberals out in Nova Scotia. So if they are re-elected in the first or second week of a campaign, that might not be a bad thing at all. A good little momentum builder for the Liberals to kick off a campaign. But still, it, it is an interesting calculation that the Liberals would risk having both of these elections taking place at the same time, having that element of control taken away from them, not waiting to see what the result is. Uh, but certainly, I don't think the next federal election is going to be decided by what happens in Nova Scotia. Nevertheless, it is something that seems to have changed because uh, I, I'm not sure that uh, we were thinking uh, earlier on in this year that the election would take place as early as this. Um, but we'll see. But everybody seems to be pretty convinced that it's going to happen and it's going to happen pretty soon. When it does happen, what won't be very quick will be the counting of the results. And that's because a lot of people are going to vote by mail this time. Stéphane Perrault, he's the CEO of Elections Canada, he says results could take between two and five days after Election Day because of the increased use of mail-in ballots. Uh, in the last election, it was less than 50,000 Canadians who voted by mail. Uh, Perrault is now estimating that could be 5 million. So we're talking about a huge increase in the amount of people who are going to vote by mail. And that means that it's going to take a while to count those ballots. Now, the counting of the mail-in ballots will start the day after the election. That's to make sure that no one who did cast a ballot by mail shows up at the last minute and uh, votes in person. So normally, you know, this is something that, since it is a small number of people, can be done in a relatively short amount of time. But here, because of the potential for 5 million ballots, uh, it's going to take a while to count them. It could take a 
couple days. Now, this is not going to be exactly like what happened in the United States. Uh, I don't think that our politics are as toxic and as uh, loopy as it is in the United States. I don't think there'll be the same kind of charges of an election being stolen or anything like that, uh, let's hope. But uh, uh, what's going to be also different is that in the United States, there's a lot of mail-in ballots. There's a lot of partisan differences in who is voting in person, who is voting by mail. And the count in a lot of the states, the ones that really made the difference, you couldn't call some of these states, these big states that were going to really decide who won the election uh, until you counted almost all the ballots. But it's not going to be the same thing here because in Canada, a lot of ridings are pretty easy to call even before a lot of the ballots are counted. And if the in-person ballots look like what we'd expect for a riding, then the ridings will be called. It won't be necessary to wait until uh, the mail-in ballots are counted. If the Conservatives are winning 70% of the vote in a rural Alberta riding, no one's going to be waiting to see what the mail-in ballots are going to show before calling uh, calling the seat. And if enough of the seats are going one direction or another, then it might actually be possible to call an election result. Uh, so it, it will be different from the United States. But in terms of having to wait until we know exactly what happened, yeah, that's going to take a couple of days. Perrault doesn't think that mail-in voting has as much of a partisan divide as it does in the United States. Now, he's right about that. But there is still a partisan divide. We saw that in both the Saskatchewan and British Columbia elections that uh, people who are voting for the Saskatchewan party or the BC Liberals, who are the right-of-center party in BC, uh, predominantly voted by showing up in person, whereas people who supported the NDP, a lot more of them voted uh, by mail. So we could end up seeing that on election night, the Conservatives are leading in a few more seats uh, than will end up being the case once all the ballots are counted. Now, that doesn't mean that will end, end election night with the Conservatives leading, and then in the next couple of days, the Liberals will move ahead like we saw in the United States. I think this would only really become an issue if the election is very, very close. And uh, that's where it could become a little bit of a limbo situation where it might take a few days. But if the results of the election are similar to where the polls are now, which of course is something we can't take for granted, but if that's the case, it might be more of a question of whether the Liberals get a majority or a minority. That could be the kind of thing where we have to wait a couple of days. But if we do get down to a nail-biter of an election, it's possible that it could take a couple of days before we know actually who will form the next government. So instead of an election results night, we'll have an election results week. And that sounds like a lot of fun, at least for me. Now, the last thing I wanted to talk about in this uh, election news of the week was uh, the fundraising numbers. They were finally all uploaded on Monday, and I published an article on the writ.ca on Tuesday breaking down the federal fundraising numbers from the second quarter. So these are fundraising numbers from between April, May, and June of 2021. The Conservatives raised the most money, as they have in almost every single quarter since the Conservative Party existed. They raised $5.1 million. The Liberals raised $3.3 million. The New Democrats raised $1.5 million. The Greens at about $680,000 and the Bloc Québécois at about $310,000. That's not a huge margin between the Conservatives and the Liberals, uh, but if you look at how things are for the year as a whole, then you see where the Conservative advantage really is. They raised $13.6 million so far in 2021, nearly doubled the $6.8 million uh, that has been raised by the Liberals. The Liberals, in turn, have raised... <laughs> pretty much uh, more than double of what the NDP has raised. They've raised $3.2 million so far. 
Again, the Greens at about half of that with 1.4 million and the Bloc Québécois at about 700,000. Those are some big numbers, but actually if this is an election year and it's looking like it will be an election year, the parties don't have nearly as much money as they did going into 2019. In the first six months of 2019, the Conservatives had raised $16.5 million. So they're $3 million short of where they were at this point two years ago. And the Liberals, they had raised $8.9 million. So they're uh, about $2 million short. Only party that's doing better going into this campaign than, uh, than the last one is the New Democrats. They had only raised $2.7 million over the first six months of 2019. And so far, they've raised $3.2 million. So the NDP is actually in better shape than they were Uh, back in 2019, which is good news for them. If we look at the regional breakdown of these numbers, based on uh, the people who donate at least $200, because those names and where they live is recorded and uh, published by Elections Canada, we see that conservative uh, fundraising, not surprisingly, is disproportionately concentrated in Western Canada and not in Quebec. They don't raise a lot of money there. The Liberals are disproportionately uh, concentrated in Ontario. They raise about more than half of their money in Ontario. Uh, they were pretty low in Quebec, lower than the, you know, the share of Quebec's population in the country. But still, they raised more of their money in Quebec than uh, either the New Democrats, the Conservatives, or the Greens. The NDP they raised nearly all of their money in Ontario and BC, and they were actually the lowest in Quebec in terms of their share of the money that they raised there. It's really not an important province for the New Democrats anymore. This is not 2011, not even 2015. And uh, when you look at those numbers and you compare them between the different parties. You see that the Conservatives probably were the top fundraisers in every province except Quebec, Nova Scotia, and Newfoundland and Labrador, where the Liberals probably raised more money than the Conservatives. So the Conservatives are going to have money in this campaign, as they always do, uh, but money doesn't always buy votes. Uh, in both 2015 and 2019, uh, the Conservatives raised more money than the Liberals, but the Liberals won those elections. For the polls of the week, we're going to start with some federal numbers from three different pollsters. They were all in the field in the last week. So these are all some very fresh numbers. And uh, two of those pollsters reported their findings today. This is Thursday that I'm recording. So the pollsters were Leger, Abacus, and the Angus Reed Institute. And overall, you look at these numbers, they're not all that different. They look pretty similar. The Leger poll had the Liberals ahead by seven points. The Angus Reed Institute poll had the Liberals ahead by five points, and Abacus had uh, a much bigger split between the Liberals and the Conservatives, a 12-point lead. But when you look at the numbers for the parties individually, you know, these look pretty similar. You have the Liberals at between 35 and 37 percent support, uh, so really not much variation there, and that is a good number for them. Lower than where they were in 2015, but uh, certainly better than the 33 percent they got in the last election. The Conservatives ranged between 25 and 30%. So there is a bit more of a split and a divide between the pollsters on where the Conservatives are, but being somewhere in the mid to high 20s, uh, maybe pushing 30% seems like a reasonable place to put them at this stage. The New Democrats in the three pollsters were pretty pretty identical, 19%, 20%, 20%. So if they are in a good spot, better than they were in the last election. The question for the New Democrats is always whether those votes will actually turn up at the ballot box. 
And for the greens, they were between 3 and 6%. Uh, so generally where we've seen them over the last little while, not as good as where they were in the last election. Uh, the three pollsters also had the Bloc Québécois uh, somewhere in around 30% or a little bit higher than that in Quebec, uh, trailing the Liberals. In Ontario, both Abacus and the Angus Reed Institute gave the Liberals big leads, 16-point leads for Abacus, 12 points for the Angus Reed Institute, only 5 points for Léger. If the gap is closer to that five-point gap, then the Liberals are going to have a hard time winning majority government with that. But if they're leading by double digits in Ontario, majority government's going to be hard for them not to win, especially if they're leading in Quebec, or at least able to win a lot of seats in Quebec. The polls are still showing the same really poor numbers for Aaron O'Toole on the personal level. Both Abacus and Angus Reed Institute still showing that he is uh, having a lot of trouble breaking through. What was really interesting, though, about the Angus Reed Institute poll is that they found a jump in COVID-19 as an issue. It went from 19% to 31% in just a few weeks. So it does show that people are um, getting concerned again about the pandemic, that for a while people might have been thinking that things were on the right track, but uh, with the rise of the Delta variant and the potential for a fourth wave, people are starting to get a bit more concerned. If you want to be very cynical about it, that's actually good news for the Liberals. The Angus Reed Institute poll found that uh, on covid Trudeau was trusted the most at 34%. Aaron O'Toole was just at 16%. So uh, the pandemic's actually a good issue for the Liberals, as, uh, as again, as cynical as that might be. Uh, if politics in this country were getting back to where they were before the pandemic, that would not be good news for the Liberals. They were not doing well in the polls before the pandemic. But these polls are pretty good for the Liberals, and uh, if we are just days away from an election call, not a bad place for them to start. Now, another poll I wanted to look at was all the way out in Alberta. This is a provincial poll that was done by Leger for Post Media. Um, you know, the election in Alberta is not scheduled to take place until 2023, so there is still quite a bit of time between now and then. But if you're Jason Kenney and the United Conservative Party of Alberta, uh, these numbers are not good. They have the New Democrats in this poll leading with 45%, so Rachel Notley's NDP still leading in the polls, and with more support than they had in the 2015 election that they won. The UCP has dropped just to 34%, and the Wild Rose Independence Party was at 8%. Uh, these are not good numbers for the UCP, and these are consistently bad numbers. There's been a number of polls now that have shown the UCP trailing the NDP in Alberta, and Jason Kenney being quite unpopular. He's going to have to turn things around. He has two years to do it, but it's better just to be ahead, <laughs> especially this is, they're still their first term in office. And, uh, you know, they're already looking like a, a spent government. The numbers at the regional level, really, really good for the New Democrats. They're leading by seven points in Calgary, leading by 19 points in Edmonton. That's really where their base is. But uh, most shockingly, they're ahead by seven points outside of Calgary and Edmonton. The New Democrats usually aren't very competitive in rural Alberta, but this poll is showing that even there, uh, the UCP is struggling so much that the NDP is ahead. Lastly, I wanted to look at a, another provincial poll for Nova Scotia. Finally, we have a second poll for the Nova Scotia election campaign. This was done by Leger. They were in the field between July 30th and August 2nd, so pretty recent. They only polled 300 Nova Scotians, so it is a small poll. Uh, but nevertheless, the numbers are good for the Liberals. They're at 42%. The Progressive Conservatives were at 32%. The NDP was at 20%. And the Greens were at 5%. So this is uh, very similar to what we saw from Main Street Research. And it suggests that the debate that took place last week uh, 
did not really have much of an impact on the numbers, that the Liberals still hold a, a pretty big lead over the PCs, bigger than they had in the 2017 election when they won a majority government. Um, there are still 17% of voters in Nova Scotia who say they're undecided, so there is still the potential for things to move around. And when you look at the regional breakdown uh, that was published by Leger, they only classified it by urban versus rural. In urban areas, the Liberals were ahead by seven points over the NDP, so it does look like the battle for Halifax is going to be pretty close between the two parties. Uh, the Liberals were ahead by 19 points in the suburban parts of the province, so those outlying ridings around Halifax uh, look like they'll be pretty safe for the Liberals. But interestingly, the PCs were ahead by 10 points in rural Nova Scotia. Uh, so outside of Halifax, maybe Cape Breton, maybe the PCs will be a bit more competitive than we might have expected based on the Main Street poll that we saw earlier in the campaign. Uh, Ian Rankin, the outgoing premier, still has an advantage over Tim Houston, the PC leader. 30% of Nova Scotians polled said that uh, he would make the best premier. Houston was just at 21%, and Gary Burrell, the leader of the NDP, was at 14%. Okay, questions. This one I got from Peter Ryan. I got it uh, via email, a subscriber to the site. If you want your questions answered, subscribe to the site. He asks, One of the coolest things that I've seen in election night coverage comes from the UK, where at the end of polling, the networks provide their own exit polls that they conduct outside voting stations throughout the day. It adds drama to the evening and keeps people guessing. And more often than not, these exit polls are pretty accurate. So my question is, what is holding back the networks in Canada from doing the same thing? Ideally, when each time zone closes, they could announce the exit poll results for the province or region in question, and frankly, it would probably boost viewership. What do you think? So there's probably two kinds of exit polls that Canadians are familiar with. They see it in coverage of the uh, U.S. elections and the U.K. elections. Now, the U.S. needs to have these exit polls in part because it is a long election night, uh, even when they're able to call an election that is relatively close, it still takes after midnight often before they can do that. But they also need the exit polls to help make the calls in a lot of states, because a lot of the states take a long time to count their votes. We saw that in the last election, but even outside of a COVID election, it can take a long time to count votes in the United States in some states based on how they do it, because every state in the United States has different voting rules, different counting rules, it's ridiculous, but that's the way it is in the United States. And so exit polls can help make calls. They don't need to wait till the votes are called in California. They can look at the exit polls just to confirm what everybody thought was going to happen in California, and they can call the state. It's also important in the United States because demographics are really important. There's big demographic divides in the United States based on education, based on race, uh, in terms of how people vote. So having the exit poll gives people a good idea of what's actually happening in the U.S. In the U.K., they need these exit polls because of how results are reported in the United Kingdom. They do it very differently than us. Their election system is the same as ours. It's first past the post. Uh, you know, they have ridings across the country. Nothing different in that sense. But here, what we do is that as the votes are counted, they're reported by Elections Canada. In the United Kingdom, they only report the results when every vote is counted in a riding. So it means that it can take hours and hours before we know the results of the election because they don't announce what happened in a given riding until every single vote is counted. I actually think it's a very neat thing because they get all the candidates on the stage and it can actually be kind of fun the way they do it because in some of the ridings they have uh, joke candidates. Lord Buckethead, for example, is a well-known one. And 
you know what? He put his name on the ballot, Lord Buckethead, and he gets to stand next to the prime minister on stage and uh, have the results of the election announced in their constituency. But anyway, because of how long it takes, they need to have those exit polls so that for the eight to 10 hours uh, of election coverage, they actually have some idea of what happened and they adjust the results throughout the night based on the votes that are counted and reported. So it makes sense for the UK to do this. In the United States, it makes sense as well. But it's very expensive to do it. And especially in the United States, you need to do it across the country. It's it's exit polls. It's people literally polling people as they exit the polling stations. And what happens is that the networks get together to pay for it because it is so expensive. Uh, the UK, they do the same thing. Canada really couldn't afford to do it unless all the networks got in together to do it. Uh, and I really don't see that there's money for it in Canada. But also, there's not much of a reason for it. Elections are called pretty early in Canada. Uh, you know, some elections can take only a couple hours. And since we do have results being counted throughout the night, there's always some indication of where things are going. So it's not really as necessary. It would be fun to have more of those demographic splits and have an idea of how things went. But there wouldn't actually be that long to talk about the exit poll results. In the UK, they have hours and hours and hours. They need something to talk about. Same thing in the United States. They have hours to fill. They need something to talk about. In Canadian election nights, it's not really as needed. And it's so expensive that I, I don't think uh, any of the networks would really see the value of it, even if it would be a lot of fun. You know, for election junkies like us, um, it, it, I just don't see the return on that investment for Canadian networks. Owen Black, he asked on Twitter, If Trudeau wins another minority government, what's the historical precedent of what happens to a leader with back-to-back -back minorities, and how long would he be expected to have before resigning the leadership? I thought this was an interesting question because I, I didn't know the answer. I wanted to look it up. The, the fact of the matter is, there's really not a long list of back-to-back -back minority governments being elected under the same party and under the same leader. Uh, federally, there was Mackenzie King. He won a minority governments in the 1920s. Um, but, you know, he was reelected multiple times. He uh, came back in 1935 after losing the 1930 election. And he was reelected again in 1940, 1945. He stayed until 1948. So he was leader of the Liberal Party for um, nearly 30 years. And so the fact that he won back-to-back -back minorities in the 1920s didn't hurt him. He stuck around. The other example, though, is Lester Pearson. He won minority governments in 1963 and 1965, and he did, in the, in the end, announce his resignation in 1967. So he didn't stick around much longer after that second minority. There was the realization, maybe, that he wasn't going to be able to break through, and then Pierre Trudeau came in, and, of course, he broke through in 1968. The other example uh, federally is Stephen Harper, minorities in 2006, another minority in 2008, but then he got his majority in 2011. So he didn't leave as a result of his minority victories. And since they were bigger minority governments in 2008 than in 2006, he had momentum going. So there's not a lot of precedent for this at the federal level. If Justin Trudeau wins another minority government, it doesn't mean that he's going to be shown the door any you know, after a little while, because that's what has happened in the past. There really isn't that much of a precedent. Uh, even provincially, the only really one I could track down was Bill Davis in Ontario. Uh, he won minority governments in 1975 and 1977, but he stuck around and then won a majority in 1981. Uh, so as you can see, it's, I think it really depends on the situation, and it depends on the leader and the uh, political dynamics at play. 
Uh, this question I got from Simon Carmichael. Uh, I got this one in, in French. I'll read it in French. I'll translate and I'll, I'll answer in English. Comment est-ce que les enjeux locaux, ultra-locaux, influencent le vote différemment en région rurale versus dans les centres urbains? Où sont-ils les plus importants déterminants? So in short, uh, when, how do local issues influence the vote? And is that influence different between rural and urban centers? Generally, the smaller the population in a riding, the more important local issues are going to be. And generally, rural ridings are the ones that have smaller populations. Urban centers, the population changes a lot, uh, is often growing in places where, you know, new seats were added because of a growing population. Ten uh, years later, after the census, before the new boundaries come in, you know, the population can be quite different. So we see that in rural areas and uh, smaller ridings that local issues usually have much bigger impact. This is especially the case in Atlantic Canada. There's a few examples of that we can think of. Bill Casey back in 2008, he won as an independent after he left the Conservative Party over the Atlantic Accord. The Liberals, they'd suffered big losses in 1997 in Atlantic Canada because of EI. Um, you know, those are cases where local issues really mattered. And uh, Simon, he uh, covers uh, Le Gaspésie for Le Soleil, the newspaper in Quebec City. Uh, Le Gaspésie is actually where I was born. It's where my, my family is from. Uh, it's actually a good example. Uh, Gaspésie, Les Îles de la Madeleine, the riding there in Quebec. Uh, lots of money have been has been flowing into that riding. There's been lots of announcements by the, by the federal government uh, for the riding of Gaspésie, Les Îles de la Madeleine. There's some, I mean, there, uh, there's a good reason for that. It's a riding that is poorer, it's, it's older, uh, you know, it does need more support than some other ridings. We just saw recently announcements for funding for the airports in Montjoly and Gaspé. Uh, Trudeau we even visited in July. He went to Gaspé and, and Perse. He uh, announced some funding for uh, a plant that creates uh, wind turbines in Gaspé. It was a close riding in the last election in 2019. It is held by the Parti Québécois provincially. The Bloc Québécois is going to be targeting it. Yves-François Blanchet, he also took a tour to the Gaspé in the summer. Uh, so the Liberals want to hold this riding. So it, it, it does show how... When it is a riding like this, you have to give it special attention um, because it's not going to as often be swept up in national campaigns, national waves. But it's not just rural ridings. It can also happen in urban ridings. You think of the Trans Mountain Pipeline, the terminus being in Burnaby. That made it a big issue in the Burnaby ridings in both the recent federal and provincial elections. So that's an urban riding, but a local issue was really important there. It's predominantly in rural areas that you see that local issues can be decisive in elections, um, but it, as always, it can depend. All right, with a federal election call potentially days away, on this week's installment of the Every Election Project, which is my attempt to cover every Canadian election in Canadian history, I thought I'd take us all the way back to where it all started. The first federal election in Canadian history was held in the summer of 1867. I can't be more specific than that, actually, because the first elections in Canada were not all held on the same day. John A. Macdonald, he was named Canada's first Prime Minister after Confederation, and only a few weeks later, he called the first election. He needed to fill the House of Commons, and the writs were issued on August 6th. Like I said, elections at the time were held across the country at different times, and in this election campaign in 1867, the voting took place between August 7th and September 20th. This was a practice that was usually to the advantage of the government because the government could set the days of the election in individual ridings, and they would tend to schedule their 
safer seats earlier on to, to build some momentum during the campaign, to make the case that they were going to form the government and people who are voting in ridings later on should get on board. So McDonald, he led the conservatives and the liberal conservatives. There, there were candidates who ran under uh, both designations. This was, though, the conservative party. The liberals or reformers, based on where they were, did not have an established leader. George Brown, he was the de facto head of the party. He was the leader of the Ontario Liberals. In Quebec, Antoine-Aimé Dorion, he was the leader of the Rouge in Quebec. So it was a bit more fractured on the liberal side. In Nova Scotia, Joseph Howe, he led the anti-Confederation party. This was a party that wanted Nova Scotia's entry into Confederation repealed. Joseph Howe was the leader there. But what was really probably the most notable about this first election is how it was different from elections that are held today. There was no Elections Act, at least at the national level back then. So the rules of the election were whatever each individual colony had before Confederation. New Brunswick was actually the only province with a secret ballot. All the other ones you had to proclaim publicly how you voted. This made it very vulnerable to bribery and intimidation. Both of these things happened a lot. Who could vote varied from province to province. Of course, it was only men. There were property requirements. In Ontario, you had to have $200 worth of property if you lived in an urban area or $100 in a rural area. In Nova Scotia, it was $150. In New Brunswick, it was $100. And it was between $200 and $300 in Quebec. Women were, of course, ineligible to vote. Civil servants were also ineligible. Also uh, policemen, judges, prosecutors. In effect, Indigenous people were disenfranchised, if not explicitly, it was very rare for Indigenous people to meet these qualifications, and if they did, there was often some other rules that prevented them from voting. So this was primarily white men with some property. A very small proportion of the actual adult population could vote in the 1867 election and for many of the elections after that. Candidates could run in multiple constituencies, so you could put your name forward in one riding and... Another riding, they didn't even need to be in the same province, and if you won both, you could choose which one you wanted to represent. You could even be an MP both in the House of Commons and in your provincial legislature. This was something that was eventually gotten rid of, but you could be both an MP and a premier. It was only in 1885 when the electoral laws were made completely uniform across the country and uh, got rid of this system where each individual province ran and held their elections at different times and in different ways. Now, the election was really about confederation, and both the conservatives and the liberals agreed on confederation, so there really wasn't anything much that differentiated them. And John and MacDonald was the person who was deemed to be really the person who made confederation happen. He was the incumbent. He had often led the governments in uh, Canada West and Canada East uh, before confederation. So they had all the advantages and they used them. The conservatives and the liberal conservatives, they won 100 seats. The liberals formed the official opposition, winning 62 seats. And the anti-confederation party won 18 seats. Conservatives won the most seats in Ontario and especially in Quebec. This was where the Bleu were led by Georges-Étienne Cartier. Liberals only won the most seats in New Brunswick. The anti-confederate party under Joseph Howe nearly swept Nova Scotia, winning all but one seat. Uh, John McDonald was pretty dismissive of them. He called them a small cloud of opposition, no bigger than a man's hand. After the attempts to have Confederation repealed failed, newsflash, Nova Scotia is still a province in Canada, uh, the anti-Confederation party ended up splitting between the Conservatives and the Liberals. Joseph Howe actually joined John McDonald's cabinet as a Conservative. 
George Brown, he was defeated in his own riding, uh, but the Liberals would eventually get their act together and weaken McDonald's hold on the country in the 1872 election. McDonald would resign over the Canadian Pacific Railway scandal in 1873, and the Liberals would win an election in 1874. But McDonald would be back in office by 1878, and he would remain there until his death in 1891. So that's how the first election went at this time, about 154 years ago. If the speculation is right, in about six or seven more weeks, we'll know how the 44th election in Canada's history will go. And that's it for the RIT podcast this week. As always, thanks to everyone who has subscribed to the RIT.ca, and if you haven't, you can head over to the website and subscribe to get access to all the content ahead of what could be a pretty busy summer. And if you like the podcast, be sure to give it a rating or share it with your friends. I'll be back next week. Until then, thanks for listening. <music>